Here we go. We're in the book of Joshua, chapter 8, as we continue to um, make our way with Israel. We've been with them from Egypt in slavery, and they've been at the, the banks, the shores of the Jordan River. And because the spies came back that they sent out and said, we're like grasshoppers in front of them. They were afraid and they disobeyed God and um, would not go in. And so God said, well, then you're going to be punished and sent into the desert to wander for 40 years. And this generation will all perish except for Caleb and, and Joshua. And then the people said, well, second thought, we're going in. And Moses told them, no, God said, no, you didn't go when you're supposed to. Now don't go when you're not supposed to. And they go anyway, and they're defeated, and they come back, and then they, they, they wander. Then the second generation has come up. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've um, had a miraculous uh, crossing over the Jordan. They've had a uh, miraculous defeat of um, Jericho. And then they went, as you recall, they went to, um, to Ai, or it's spelled A-I, Pronounced I, um, the, the smaller city to conquer it, and they were defeated. And then we find out, and we're told behind the scenes, that's because of Achan's sin, um, that the entire nation um, is faltering because of it. And so the sin is punished. There's forgiveness that's been offered. And now, what's going to happen? As Israel has been defeated, and now they're supposed to move forward do we have the type of God who's going to say well let's keep going or or I'm done you've failed me for the last time so we'll read in Joshua chapter 8 you know, what occurs let's pray Father God we pray that you will be with the reading of your word the preaching of your word that that the preparation that's been put in this the prayers of your people that have been put into this Lord that we would um, hear your voice that by your spirit uh, we would hear you speak and that we would be transformed even by what we hear this morning. So we pray for the preaching and the active hearing of your word, that we would give full attention to it, that the things of this world and our flesh and of Satan that would seek to distract us, that we would be able to focus our hearts and minds, ears, eyes, bodies on this, this moment, that you've brought us together around your word, a means of grace that you've promised to bless. So we thank you for your blessing upon it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin just the first two verses here in chapter 8. The word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. The word of the Lord. So if you recall, the first time they weren't allowed to take anything. Um, it's all supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, destroyed. It goes up in fire and smoke to the Lord. Um, it, it was the band, Haram. It was dedicated to destruction to the Lord. 
But Achan saw it and he said he coveted and he had to have it. He had to have the things that were devoted to God for destruction and he took it and then he ended up being the one devoted for destruction. And if you look back and compare Joshua chapter 7, just go back one chapter to see you know, the context of, of where we are. Um, we're told in verse 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan the son of Carmi. Son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Your backdrop. And then verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Don't have all the people go up, but only let two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Don't make the whole people toil up there for a few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Sherebrim and struck them at the descent, and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And so now God deals with his people and we get to chapter 8 and you see in that context, remember what God has said. Now he says, do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the men with you. So it's sort of an interesting thing because sometimes we have in our mind and we've seen instances in scripture where God says on a few occasions, you don't need so many people. Whittle it down, whittle it down, whittle it down. You're depending on power. You're depending on strength. You're depending on your ability, and I want you to depend on me. And so we see what they did at first was Joshua, the, the, the spies come back, and they see what God's done. They said, we don't, don't send everybody, just send a few people. And, and that's not a bad thing, but it seems maybe there is some presumption on their part. Maybe they're saying, you know, I don't need to be, we don't need to worry about being as strong as we can because we've got God. So what need we worry about? Well, what they had to worry about the first time was a sin in the camp and you aren't holy and you aren't seeking the Lord. And, and there's some debate. As to, we aren't told that God told them to go, but they had been told to do these things. So they aren't necessarily in disobedience, but are they walking in direct on the heels of Christ, so to speak? Are they following the Lord well here and at least somebody isn't and God is allowing this to happen at this particular point to make a point to Israel and to us and what ends up happening is they're defeated and then the sin is revealed the sinner is punished the people are forgiven and now he says one don't fear don't be dismayed now, don't fear is about 33 times in the, in the Old Testament you read in the Hebrew there, don't fear. Um, don't fear in one form or another is the most commanded commandment in all of Scripture. But it adds, and don't be dismayed. That's not typically added. I think, if I remember correctly, it's like three times in Scripture that and don't be dismayed is, is added there. And there are pivotal points of, in redemptive history where these things happen, where God's covenant is about to be um, fulfilled in some different ways so he's saying you know don't fear and don't be dismayed now it's one thing not to be afraid it's another thing to be dismayed the fear is like man i really want to go about it just can't because i'm going to be defeated dismayed is like, it's hard to rally people who are dismayed uh, what's another word for dismayed you're just you've given up hope you what 
I was asking rhetorically, but thank you. Despair. <laughs> yeah, and my English teachers, that's what I need you for. Um, they're despair. If, we're, if, we, if you're in despair, um, you, again, you're also a football coach. So football teams, when they, they may be afraid of the other team. You can, you can pump some people up. Fear not. We're going in. You've got, you're stronger than them. But when there's dismay, you know, we're, I'm a South Carolina fan and I'm a Panthers fan. I get the point. You know what it's like. It's hard to rally a group of people who have decided hopelessness. And God is telling him, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. And he says, and take all the men with you, all the fighting men with you. So he doesn't say, he could have said, you know what, just take five. We're going to defeat this whole town. Or he could say what he did at Jericho. Just walk around it seven times, blow the trumpet, shout. The walls are going to come tumbling down. They didn't hardly even need anybody for that. But he says, take everybody this time. And he says, you arise and you go. I've given them into your hand. His people are sitting in his land. And you're going to do to it like you did to Jericho and its king. But this time you can take some things. If Achan had just waited... For the timing of God, he may have seen great treasures here and he could have had some of the spoil, but he wouldn't wait. So then in, in verse 3, we see, and we have to remember our context also, not just in what just happened, but we were talking about Rahab before. How Rahab responded and she was the, the Canaanite prostitute. Her whole country, her town, her city of Jericho was devoted to destruction. But she had faith, she heard about God, she believed in God, and she hid the spies. And she did it out of faith, and therefore she and her family are saved. So you have somebody devoted for destruction that becomes a part of the nation of Israel. Then we had Achan, who was a part of Israel, and he becomes devoted for destruction. So we have this juxtaposition of Rahab and Achan, who are in two completely different places to start with, and they are switched in the end. And the one who had all the covenant promises, the one who had been circumcised, the one who had heard the voice of the Lord, fought with the Lord, was a part of the nation of Israel because he had not faith, is devoted for destruction. So it's always by faith. And so now the question here for Joshua is, are you going to follow me by faith? Don't fear or be dismayed. And that's a message for us. We have to think, is God for us? Have we been forgiven? Are we able to go forward with the things we're called to do um, in faith? Because if God's for us, who can be against us? And if he's with us, we can do anything we're called to do. And indeed, we're told we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So we have these promises. But there are lots of battles we fight. And in the New Testament, the type of warfare that the Christian is told that we will fight, that there is a warfare and that there is a battle ahead of us, that we're always in these battles and there are battles of personal belief and faith. And we have to ask ourselves in this particular case, it's not bad to say, you know, which are you going to be? Are you Rahab or are you Achan? And then we're going to see which one is, is Joshua going to be. So hold your place here and let's just quickly turn over to the book of Romans chapter 7, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. 
Romans. We'll start reading in verse 21. So Romans chapter 7, verse 21. As we were thinking about warfare, battles, things that we're involved in here as Christians in the church, Romans 7, 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So back at verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind. That's the analogy he uses. Now Israel is not in an analogy. They are in actual physical warfare. But what God is showing them is it's physical warfare, but way beyond that it's spiritual warfare that it is not your physical ability that wins the land and we're going to look at it's not your righteousness your righteousness that wins the land it's god's power and might that wins the land that wins the battle it is spiritual in its at its heart um first peter 2 11 i think i have this one on the screen possibly it says uh, Peter writes, this is beloved, I urge you as travelers and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which war against your soul. So again, this concept of war, James 4, 1, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So again, there's this battle within you of your passions and it causes quarrels and it causes fights among us because our passions are at war within us. And it's a spiritual battle. It has to be fought with faith. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is what these wars are, what these external battles are, the way we respond to internal temptations and external temptations and external attacks. Um, it does something to your faith if you're a believer. It, it makes, you know, something happens and you respond with a lack of faith. And then something else happens. Or you have this thing that you believe to be true about God and then something contrary to that happens and you're suddenly like, wow, Lord, are you putting me through this trial? And then your faith changes. You learn something new about God. You, you learn something you, you maybe you knew, but now you've experienced it and now I know it differently than I did before because I've been through a trial. Trials, the purpose of trials in the believer's life is to burn off the dross of your faith and to make it more pure because your faith is more precious than gold and silver. 
So maybe you lose all your gold and silver, but you get more faith because of it. Amen. Maybe you're poor and all of a sudden you win the lottery and your faith has to, what happens to your faith? You know, it's one thing to be poor and depend on God. All of a sudden you win the lottery, who are you depending on now? You know, and it's like you see the messes people make of their lives when they become wealthy. And Paul talks about these things. And in that context, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I can do what? I can fly through the air. People make fun of that verse. You know, you can be a football player. You're only three feet tall. You know, things like this. I mean, it's, you can do all things. Yeah, in the context I've learned how to be wealthy and not sin. I've learned how to be poor and not steal. I've learned how to live in all these different circumstances and still trust God. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. It's all about our faith. It's the most important thing. The Word of God says your faith is the most important thing you have because it's by faith that you're attached to Christ. It's by faith that we walk. It's by faith that we breathe and live and walk and all of these things. So do we trust God is the question. And then this is a good question, I think, for the believer. And you have to understand the difference between justification and sanctification. You have to understand that you're saved not by works but by faith. Um, but then there's a, and, and that we're positionally, we're sanctified, we're declared holy in Christ. But there's an ongoing work in the believer where we die more and more to sin and we live more and more to righteousness. So that there's a transformation that takes place because of the transformation of our faith. It's an outworking. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is what the Bible says to us because it's so important. So do we trust God? And what we're going to see here in Joshua and throughout all of Scripture is this question. Do you trust God with your obedience? That's a, that's a huge question. Do you, can you, trust God with your obedience? Not... Can God trust us to be obedient? You know, if, if that's where God's trust is, is in our obedience, then, then you're not worshiping the same God of the Bible. God, God, God has no confidence in our ability to be trusted. Promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So it's not can God trust us to be obedient, or it's not can we convince God to love and bless us by our obedience. If I would just be more obedient, God would bless me. If I'd be more obedient, things would go better for me. If I'd be more obedient, sometimes yes, but then you can be like the, you know, that's the whole story of the older and the younger brother. The, the, the younger son went out, the prodigal son went out, and he wanted all the father's stuff now, give it to me now. And he goes off and he spends it all. And then the older brother is there. And then finally, the, and he's supposed to go out after the younger one, but he doesn't. And finally, the younger brother comes back. And he's sorry. And he says, you know, my father will accept me. And then the older brother's just aggravated because he's spending all his money. It's going to be mine. Now he's coming back. And was, you know, the party is now coming out of the elder brother's pocket because he's supposed to inherit the stuff. And um, Ed Clowney and Tim Keller have an excellent little study they've done. And they make this point that the problem was both the elder brother and the younger brother were both lost because the problem was they didn't love the father. They just wanted his stuff. One of them wanted it now and to go live off sinfully. And the other said, I will get the father's stuff by being obedient. I will earn it. I'll be good. I'll sit here and finally I'll get the father's stuff. But I don't really love the father. If he had loved the father, he'd have loved the son. He'd have loved his brother. He would have seen the object of his father's love and his heart would have been cast upon it too. 
but they just wanted the Father's stuff. And so we can be obedient in order to earn the Father's love, in order to earn the Father's stuff, but do you love the Father? And do you love Him and trust Him enough with your obedience? And then we get to Joshua chapter 8 again, and we go to verse 3. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. So he's obedient, swagging in obedience now because of faith. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And, and he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people of all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, remember, they've already been once, and they were run out. And you're, so the plan is, well, let's see what they say. Just as before, we shall flee before them. Okay, so we ran last time, we're going to run again. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they'll say they're fleeing from us just as before. So we'll flee before them. Okay, so it's like... They go out with a lot more people this time. And so the, the people of I must be thinking, oh, they think they can win now. They brought more people. You know. And so they come. And, you know, I must have been a little bit, you know, concerned about this. Uh, it's interesting how God works in different ways in different battles. At Jericho, the people were just afraid. They couldn't even move. And they went in. You know, God just did it all. And here, the people of I are overconfident. The people of the enemies of God are thinking, okay, they brought more people, but then once they attack, they start to run away. It's like, oh, they're running again. So they run after this large army. In verse 7, then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. That's the pivotal. you got a lot of people, but we have a great plan. It's God who's going to give the victory, verse 8, and as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, stretch out your javelin. Or spear, it's kadon in, in Hebrew. Stretch out your javelin that is in your hand toward I, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Now it is significant here 
that that Joshua has this this kadon, I think is what it's called. This he has this um, this javelin or spear that it's called, and he's raising it. Moses was told to do a similar thing when they're crossing over the Red Sea. You raise your staff, and a staff is used as a leadership, but it also represents um, um, like shepherding. It represents um, the staff was there to lead. A javelin is a weapon of war, and so they go from being led out by Moses as a shepherd leads his people out to being led now by Joshua who with the javelin which is you know the tip of the spear it's the it's the weapon of war and he's saying so we think this points forward to Christ and so you know what's our vision of Christ what's our image of Christ and there, there are many images that he gives us of himself one is as a shepherd but he's also a warrior he says, follow me. And remember, Moses, too, was a man of war. So just lest we forget who our God is, hold your place here in Joshua a moment. Go to Exodus chapter 15. So it's the second book of the Bible. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 1 there. Just a few verses here. Exodus 15. Um, it says the word Lord is in all caps. It's this covenant name of God, Yahweh. And so in Exodus 15, it's the song of Moses. They've um, crossed the Red Sea. They have um, defeated um, Egypt. They've been freed. And so then we have the song of Moses, 15.1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Now, I think that KJV says the same thing. It says man of war. It can kind of be a little confusing. It's like, God, Yahweh's a man? Yahweh's a man? Well, the word just means warrior. It gets translated man of war, which I don't like because it makes you, to me, it makes you think incarnation and this kind of stuff. But he's saying Yahweh's a warrior. That's literally, it's just one word in Hebrew. It means warrior. Yahweh is a warrior. And Yahweh is his name. That he is a warrior. He fights. And it matters whose side you're on. Let's go the opposite direction and go to Deuteronomy chapter 9. It's just the, uh, one book over. So do, from, from Joshua. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verses 4 and 5. So, so as they've gone in. Egypt's, um, Israel sees Egypt defeated. Uh, the nation of Israel is going in, defeating enemies in the land. And then we're told this back in Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning in verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, that it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, 
are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God is keeping his promises. So as they're going in and we see God, the nation of Israel killing people who are living in the land, we have to remember they are acting as the tip of the spear of God. They're the vengeance of God. And it's not because they're so good and he wants them to remember this. This is about what God is doing through them. God is the one who is righteous, not them. He's not saying, you guys are so great, you're going to get the land. So we have to be careful of that in our own lives too. That's not because of our own righteousness that we were chosen um, to be a part of the body of Christ. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you had to be careful in thinking that you were chosen, you were engrafted into Christ for some reason because of your righteousness. Because then what we start to think is, I have to stay in by my righteousness. God will bless me more by my righteousness. I earn the respect of God. I earn the right to be able to tell God what to do. You, know, you get all these weird things that go on. And so then what we'll also say in, then should we just sin so that grace might abound? And then Paul has said, may God forbid. No, no, no. Trust God with your obedience. Because when we don't, we make a bloody mess of things. Of our lives, everybody around us, because we're not trusting God with our obedience. And we decide what I want goes first. What I need comes first. I'm more important than everyone else. Or like Achan, God won't see. God doesn't care. I know what I want. I'm taking it. And I can deal with the consequences later. And we make a bloody mess of things. But because God is good and gracious, he deals with us and he helps us and he works on our faith. So as we're back in, in Joshua, um, let's see, he's in verse 18 again. The Lord said to Joshua, stretch out your javelin that's in your hand, for I give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had conquered the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out of the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. And when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, when they had pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel, took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. 
So Joshua burned I and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So another memorial of stones. You know, one, look at the great things God did in, in parting the Sea of the Jordan. And another, uh, look what God did when he destroys Achan and sin. Look what God does when he destroys the king of this terrible nation. So he puts this king on a tree. So we have to start thinking about Jesus. You know, there's this intentionally here. It's like you can't, it's, it's got to be. So this is in God's mind. This is something that's here. It's like, okay, they put the king on a tree and Jesus is king and he's on a tree. The cross is called a tree. It's wood. Um, so just one more time to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21. And this explains this whole thing about the tree. So Deuteronomy 21 verses 22, 23. So Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, so this is a little, you know, they're dead, then you put the body up on this tree. And in the crucifixion, they put the live body there, and they leave it until it's dead. Um, if a man's committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him in the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. Now he's not cursed because he's hanged. He's hanged because he's cursed. This is a, an example to say this God has cursed this person and we're showing that his death was cursed because we're hanging him on a tree. Jesus Christ, crucified, hanged on a tree, this is the verse where it says, cursed is the man who's hanging by a tree. Why would he, what an odd thing, except that God knows this is going to point people to Jesus Christ and they need to see this and they're able to look back in scripture and they're able to see from the mind of God way beforehand how this was all according to his predestined plan. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So it defiles the land if you leave him up overnight in some way. And so that all takes us to our closing in Galatians chapter 3. So if you go to Paul's letter to 13, Galatia. So the you know, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you know, GEPC, however you want to remember that, General Electric Power Company, um, Galatians in New Testament, chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul is giving them a hard time. They're trying to be saved by works of the law. And he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. All the things in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can't be declared innocent by the law. For the righteous live by faith. And this is from Abraham. How, how, do we, how are we declared righteous? 
through faith, not by works of the law. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So if you're going to you live by faith or you live by the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, next week, we're going to look at the renewal covenant ceremony that Joshua has. And he reads the cursings and the blessings that are for Israel based on the law. And so all of Israel sees it's under a curse from Adam. They're under a curse. It's only through the grace of Jesus Christ that this is redeemed. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, that's the Israelites, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, people who aren't Jewish, so that we might receive the promised spirit, how? Through faith, not by works of the law, whether it be moral, ceremonial, civil, no law works, but by faith in Christ. But there's a curse because we're all sinners. But Jesus becomes the curse. When that king and I was hung, why'd they do that? Because he represented his city. He represented his people. And what God was saying was, those people are cursed. Don't become like those people. Those people are cursed. And we're going to take him down at night because he's not going to defile the land. Jesus, our king, king of the Jews, is hanged. He represents his people. Because those people are cursed. And he becomes the curse. He's alive on that tree. And he dies. And he doesn't deserve it. Because he's not cursed. But he becomes a curse. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that when he dies, we are right up there with him. Positionally in Christ. When the king died on the cross, those who were believers in him were nailed to the cross with him. And when he died, we died with him. And when he rose again, we rose with him. So that he represented his people. And he's no longer cursed. He's no longer a curse. He is the righteousness of God. He has been justified. He was declared righteous and good. His, his sacrifice was sufficient for all. It's by his blood we are cleansed and redeemed. So that we go from being the ones devoted to destruction to the ones devoted to the Lord when we're found in him. So that there's no condemnation for those in Christ. And they take all these stones and they throw it on top of the king of I and they raise a pile. And they put Jesus in a, in a tomb and they roll a huge stone in front of it. And they seal it with Pilate's seal. There's no way in, there's no way out. You penalty of death, you open that thing. But the king of I, he's still down there somewhere, dust and ashes. But Jesus, our king, he rose again. He's no longer there. The grave couldn't hold him. He's no longer cursed. He's justified. He's declared righteous. He's declared the savior. 
And he's given the name above all names, that in the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's only one king. And he is the king of kings, and he's our king. And then we're going to see Joshua renews this covenant. And we're going to look at that next week, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's where we renew the covenant of God again, where he says, this is my body, this is my blood, it's given for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. And so we're, we're to have faith. We're to have faith that God loves us and that he's for us. We're to have faith that God fights all of his and our battles in our place. That he is the king. That if we choose to disobey God, our souls are in danger according to the word of God. That we can make a bloody mess of things when we don't follow Christ. But in his grace and goodness, he pulls us back. And if we can trust by the power of the Holy Spirit, and if we can trust him with our loving obedience, then we have life in him and our faith increases. And an obedient Christian is not a hard person. An obedient Christian is not a legalistic dictator. An obedient Christian is a love, a loving, kind, gracious merciful, forgiving, humble person. A, a, a kindly person who, who pardons people when he's offended. And he, 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 he forgives people because he knows he's forgiven or she's forgiven. You don't have to trust God with the outcomes of our forgiveness and our gentleness. So that we can experience the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We had to get out of our minds the idea of an obedient Christian being hard and rough and difficult to deal with. Because Jesus was not. But he is our king. And we follow him. And he is a warrior. And he will not let us be defeated. Let's pray. Father God, the battles we fight in our lives, just within our own hearts, they're enough to undo us. So we thank you that you're stronger than the world, you're stronger than all the demonic forces of evil, that you're stronger than our, than our own flesh. Lord, we've been crucified with you. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in you. Help us to do that. Help us to learn from the example of Israel in the Old Testament that we just need to believe that you're the one who has victory. You're the one, not because of our righteousness, but because of you. We pray you will build your church. You will grow us in depth, in width, in height, so that we might praise you to the praise of your glorious grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.